0: immersive audio podcast in conversations with industry thought leaders practitioners artists academics and entrepreneurs discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art science and business to practical insights and project case studies we aim to inform educate explore and unite the community
1: Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 49, with me, Oliver Cadell and Bjorn Jacobson.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. We're excited to have you here.
1: Bjorn, how are you?
2: I'm doing good. Uh, i a little bored after COVID still, but I'm doing pretty good. Got lots of work and so on. Today, I'm crying over the fact that Daft Punk has decided to split up, but that's about it. Ah, interesting. I haven't heard about that one. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's all over the news. You should check it out. They even made a small video telling the people that they are splitting up. Have they finally revealed their faces? Uh, they have not revealed their faces. But I'm, I'm for one a type of guy who who doesn't really care about their faces because I have seen their faces back in '97 when I saw one of their concerts, which was great before they started wearing the masks.
1: So they send a divorce message whilst wearing those helmets.
2: Yeah, they basically did. <laughs> It's pretty cool, actually, but it's a little sad that they're splitting up. I guess it's, it's they've been together for twenty eight years. I guess, I guess every all good things come to an end. I mean, at some point, you got to split up if you've been working together for twenty eight years, and and one gets tired or the other one, something else. Uh, nobody knows, and it does, and it's not really not our business why they're splitting up. It's just sad because I think they made they made some great music.
1: Well, thanks for filling the news segment, because um, I do not have any news for today. Um, it's been one of those weeks, actually. Uh, I've been really busy, head down, uh, my teaching started, so, um, so I had to do a lot of preparations. So I haven't really yeah, made an effort to see what's going on out there in the world, in the world of immersive audio, rather. But we have a really cool, interesting, hot topic today, which is about head tracking for audio. And our guest today, Ben Sapper from Sapperware. Ben started Sapperware in 2018 with the aim of making hardware and software to meet the needs of professional musicians and engineers who work with the immersive audio. The first product to reach general sale is a head tracker without which there's no point making anything else, as Ben suggests. He spent a total of 20 years working as a product engineer and occasional manager for Roly, Focusrite and others. Some products he's particularly proud of co-developing include Roly Seaboard and the Novation Launchpad and Mininova. But more on this later.
3: Hello and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Ben, welcome to the podcast.
1: And um, I believe we met a couple of years ago at the ES conference in York. That was a conference for immersive and interactive audio, you've been working on an interesting product since. We'll talk about this later. Let's start with how did you get into the industry and um, whereabouts did you grow up in the UK?
3: Um, well, I, I grew up in Reading, just west of London. Um, insofar as anybody grows up, really living in Reading for eighteen years. But um, <laughs> right, I, um, I then went to um, I then went to the University of Surrey and, and, and did the Tonmeister course there. But I suppose we can. Um, cover that in a minute how did I get into audio I keep saying to anybody else I know who's in audio well nobody does it for the money and they laugh and they agree with me but um, I suppose like most people in this field I follow my interests and my talents for as long as I've been able to read write or stand up somehow I managed to inherit some musical ability and from somewhere else I got a facility for maths and engineering and um my life to date has really resulted from a refusal to choose between the two. I, and I don't think I'd want to live without either.
1: Excellent. That's probably the most philosophical answer we have got here on the podcast. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about your Toynmaster degree at the University of Surrey, which I know is notoriously difficult to get into and even harder to survive and, and graduate. <laughs> um, can you share a little bit more about that experience?
3: Well, um, well, it is hard to get into. Uh, 25 years ago, I think it was, um, well, there were much, there were far fewer audio engineering courses, and um, I discovered the Tonmeister course halfway through my sixth form, miraculously having picked the the three magic A-levels you need to get onto the course, which are maths, physics, and music. Uh, I found it quite a lot of fun. The selection process was certainly a lot of fun. It wasn't easy, and I can't really say I aced anything, but uh, you give a performer a stage, and as long as they prepare, they'll enjoy it, and with any luck, you'll enjoy it too. But the course itself, I I don't know. Very, there were very few dropouts on the Tonmeister course. Uh, there were none in my year, for example. So while most people survive, I, it was safe to say that not everybody thrives on it. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, the first is that um, university life then, more than now, I think, was a very artificial environment, and they expected you to... Um, the first thing that makes it not like the adult world is that you are assessed on your individual merits and you are generally dissuaded from working together for most of the coursework that you produce. Um, and, of course, as soon as you enter the real world, that's a terrible preparation because you are no longer judged on your individual merits so, long as so much as your ability to get on. And that kind of uh, And your ability to manage people sort of informs your success for the rest of your career um the other thing that's really hard about the tonmeister course uh, apart from the kind of individuality of the pursuit is the, is the um the huge sides of the curriculum so um as a student you're expected to demonstrate your competence as a musical arranger a musicologist a writer of essays long and short mathematician engineer recording engineer sometimes a performer uh, as a musician um that's a lot to that's a lot to expect people to excel at and some, very few were brilliant at everything. Um, I was really, really good at a couple of parts of that syllabus and mediocre at the rest. So while I carried off two piano performance prizes and the highest mark they ever gave for finally a technical project, I, I still only managed a 2-1. And I think that kind of story is the case for everybody. But as I say, it's a, the world of academia is very artificial. So you can't, you can't get too embittered by that. You have to look to the future. And, 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 and be very thankful that you've worked out what your strengths and enthusiasms are. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Sounds like a tough place to survive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know if all universities are the same, but one thing that's great about Surrey is it's quite a modern institution and people are very supportive. Whilst my friends who went to Oxford and Cambridge, I got the impression it was an extension of the public school system. It's really quite competitive and people felt very isolated there. So the thing I'm grateful for about Surrey is this sort of modern pastoral approach. Uh, the tutors and so on were, were almost friends with you. Obviously, they had to have a professional relationship with you, but um, mm-hmm. they were they were very supportive. You could go to them with problems, and they would actually sort of treat you like a grown up. And that was that that was extraordinarily valuable. I don't think you get that everywhere.
1: Beyond, do you have anything of equivalent in Denmark?
2: Uh, we have a ToneMaster course um, and lots of educations in that regard. But the funny thing is that we we have the same experience as in uh, right now. There's plenty of courses, but back then there might only have been the classically trained type of courses, um, just like Ben has been going to. Um, we have a very very nice ToneMaster course. Um, at the conservatory here but that's also very classically trained and very classically in the way of recording Uh, but now we have a film school we have all sorts of things uh, which teach audio in many many different ways audio engineering all these things we even have a specialized game audio course now which of course didn't exist
3: back then at all what was game audio back in 1996 it was um suppose i just discovered MIDI. The, well, the chips are extraordinarily primitive. I remember what was available at the time. And, and I suppose it would have been, writing music for the Amiga would have been the zenith of what you could do in those days. So basic 8-bit samples. But, but was there a specific course teaching game audio as such? I don't think there would have been, because all of the people, the people whose work I remember from that time were kind of self-taught and all quite young.
2: Yeah, oh, but that's, that's also my experience here. Um, Kind of like, okay, not to self-promote, but the YouTube channel that I run is basically trying to make all the content that wasn't available when I was starting out. Because when I was starting out, there, there was there was no YouTube, there was no help at all, no courses to do. And whenever I was trying to apply for schools, um, I always needed a classical education to get in, uh, which I didn't have because I'm not
3: musically trained. At all in that regard. Yes, they can be quite inflexible. The Tonmeister course certainly was, and um, the music side of the course is, is was certainly very classical at the time. I remember, I remember colleagues of mine who were drummers and who were playing electric guitar who wanted tuition in those instruments, and they were told no, they're not orchestral instruments. And there was still that sort of attitude, but um, I think there was a divide in philosophy. Yes, it's, it's a shame, really.
2: It's totally a shame. It's the same attitude that I bumped into for many years. Uh, not only just at, at um, when applying at the conservatory and so on, but also at at many of the schools that I went to. Uh, I went I went to a, to a Rudolf Steiner school, which is um, like a Waldorf school, whatever they call it. They call it many names, but one of the things there was that we had to be classically trained and learn classical instruments. and, and already back then, um i wanted to play the guitar i wanted to play all sorts of other things and, and and we bumped into this uh not stupid but but very old school opinion that it's not a classical instrument you can't use yeah. it like that and even when i went over to high school and met uh, musical teachers there um they had all sorts of ar- counter arguments as to why, let's say, a drum machine is not a musical instrument and why this and that is not music. They're really fighting against what is music at all um, hmm. because something was, was, let's say, new to the market or electronic music was was new to the market. And, of course, we we all agree, I'm pretty sure we all do agree that, it, that regardless of how the music is made, it is still music... Um, um, but I, I really, I, I bumped into that ad- attitude a lot.
3: Yes. Well, so, well, the irony really is that if you, if you explore the kind of Western art music tradition that is, that, that's driven by young composers and what people put into concert halls, it's, it's terribly pluralist and it's never been more progressive. And you'll probably find a drum machine in the Kadogan hall one night because these, the, the, the new classical composers don't really care. They're, Trying to make new sounds, just as their forebears were 200 years ago, and and they're certainly not snooty, or or the best ones aren't. No, I remember having a massive
2: argument with my um, my music teacher. Well, that's basically the story of my life, having arguments with teachers. (laughs) But um, (laughs) what they're for? Yeah, at at high school, we had this argument because he was saying something about. He actually, it's a legit argument that he had. He said that that drum machines and so on were not musical instruments, or at least the music that would come out to, at the end was not music because music was meant to be possible to play back, not mathematically correct, you know, if the timing was so strict in terms of MIDI and the drum machine. And I tried to tell him that that I could understand that argument, but that would also mean that at, at that time, the the latest Eric Clapton album was not music because he was specifically right. using an 808 on many of the tracks. clearly oh, because oh, yes. yeah and, that, and that's so, so why is that not music? Uh, and he he was furious because oh, but Eric Clapton, that's different because he plays the guitar on top. but but that doesn't matter because if 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 the tempo is mathematically the same all the time, does it then become boring or such like because I it's tried a recording to recording of
3: music music.
2: Yeah, exactly. And also, like, the, the drum machine is, is regardless of how anyone puts it, to, absolutely invented to support, you know, the lonely guitarist in his yes. bedroom. And, and instantly it becomes a musical instrument of its own um, that you can make cool things with, rather than just have it as a support.
3: That's it. And the whole act of repurposing and rediscovering the instrument as something else is, it's an act of musical creation. And it's really hard to draw these chalk boundaries between what is and what isn't orthodoxy and what is and what isn't music. And and eventually, if you try and draw those boundaries, you get humiliated. And that's, you know, that's probably quite healthy. <laughs> it's, it is quite healthy. Um, but you can understand why these poor tutors have to draw the line. And and, and, and yeah, that's, that's a hard job to have to do.
2: But I've, I've seen some really nice um, arguments online in terms of, Let's say if if the really old composers like Beethoven, Mozart and all those guys, if they had lived today, um, nobody's saying that they would absolutely have been electronic musicians. But a guy like Beethoven, who was constantly trying to push boundaries in terms of, you know, ending ending um, specific chords in, in the wrong note or specifically putting in instruments at the wrong time, at that time even being forbidden to be played because they were they were not what people would call say, kosher in terms of what would be considered music. He, I think a lot of those composers would have been exploring the very vast universe of not necessarily noise music, but they would clearly have have found it interesting to be able to do whatever you want with whatever instrument on the planet. Um, and so so do I. I think by
1: now we've reached a point where most people would consider a computer a most versatile musical instrument in the world. With such device, the possibility is probably endless and uh, will just continue to progress as technology uh, evolves into the future. And that's probably the the limit of the argument, isn't it?
2: I, yeah, I guess so I, I don't I, I mean, I think the the debate, just like with so many other things, is is it's relevant because it's been like that in the past. But today the debate is also kind of irrelevant because we all agree that of course it's not like that anymore. Let's
1: move on to the next question. After completing Toymaster, you also did a PhD in spatial acoustics back in 2005 at University of Surrey. Um, can you talk a little bit more about
3: your thesis? Okay, so I, well, I went back and did a PhD after a year in the real world. Um, but my final, year project, my final year undergraduate project at university, just to provide some context, was actually making a head-tracked binaural rendering system. And this was back in 2000, so it was extraordinarily hard to do but it did lay the groundwork for for my interest ever since. My PhD was actually about the converse of binaural synthesis, which is taking apart a sound field recorded at your two ears and trying to come up with a psychologically plausible way of explaining what I called secondary spatial attributes. So if you look at research in this field, it's usually about localization. So how do I know where this sound is coming from? How do I separate a bunch of sounds from different directions and work out what people are saying or where to direct my attention? his um, emphasis at the time was different. Um, they were doing a lot of work with 5.1 surround. So we were investigating things like apparent source width and listener envelopment and all of those things that surround give you. Um, they're always factors of the sound source and the room and the loudspeaker away and so on. So I'd done some work for a small broadcast company that was sponsoring my PhD, and I was trying to further an understanding of how we derive these secondary spatial attributes from what we hear. So it was a strange fusion of architectural acoustics and loudspeaker acoustics and psychoacoustics and a bit of microphone technique. So it was a, it was a very good general education. You worked
1: on product engineering for the brands from the likes of Roley, Focusrite, and Novation. Can you share your experience working on some of these iconic brands and products
3: at the time it's it's still true to say that nobody knows anything you you have no idea that you're working on hit or not or you have you have some kind of notion that something is going to do well, but actually I've worked on my fair share of things that have performed rather disappointingly as well uh, and we thought those were going to do well um, but every everybody is wise in hindsight right you you work out why something does or doesn't do well and you try and do it again but I'm very proud of the way that we handled the launch pad. Um, apart quite apart from the fact that it turned out to be a, a massive hit, probably the most successful product by volume that Focusrite made that decade. Um, and ostensibly, it was an Ableton controller. But actually, we did a bunch of other stuff, like uh, packing it with MIDI features and publishing the full spec for those features, kind of vaguely aware that there might be a bunch of homebrew people that would build a little community. And we tried to support that community and make it as easy to do as possible. Um, of course, when you're a company the size of Focusrite, the marketing department looks at what you're trying to do and they're interested and they realize that it's an impossible message to communicate, so they leave it out of the product marketing campaign. But we vaguely hoped that people would see it and the people who are now called controllerists would be waiting for it. And we did what we could to help them, and they were waiting. And and that was wonderful to see that this community came alive and made its own products around, around the thing that you were doing without your even trying to make them do it. It was just quite wonderful to see somebody take off with your idea and run in a completely different direction. The second thing I'm really pleased about is that we had to get the firmware right first time on the first launchpad. It's, um, it was 15-year-old technology now and those things weren't upgradable. And no one builds hardware like that anymore because it's a stupid risk to take these days. But there was no alternative back then and we had to get it right first time and we did. Um, we could talk about the Mininova for a bit. I suppose if you enter that field as a product designer, it becomes a dream to design a synthesizer. And I was quite lucky to do it. So um, the Novation Mini Nova, I worked with the late and wonderful Chris Huggett who did all the uh, sort of sound engine stuff and the DSP algorithms and and I did the rest. So the printed circuit board design and and all of the kind of user interface side of things and the MIDI handling and all the keyboard scanning and the stuff that isn't, directly to do with making noises. So it was quite a bit of work and of course it informed the quality of the product to a very high degree. But um yeah, working with Chris Huggett was all the nice things that people said about him when he passed away lost last October are true. He was incredibly smart and he was wonderful to work with and it's it's quite a loss. I don't think we've heard the last from him. I, I know that he was working on a couple of products when he died and um and I'm sure that some of those will some some of the work from those will continue. But um, yes, yeah, so the Minion Over was wonderful, and I got to scratch that itch and make a synthesizer. The seaboard was an incredible experience for a different reason. Um, Roly was new at the time, and that was a formative experience in the ways aged 36 and having seen a bit of the world, I really didn't expect it to be. Um, never in my wildest dreams while I have engineered a product like that. Um, really expensive materials and processes, a very specific appeal. And so extraordinarily minimal in terms of its user interface that there was absolutely no margin for error. You couldn't retrofit a feature you thought of later because there just wasn't a control for it. So it was it was very liberating to break all those rules and do something extraordinary. And actually to see it working, it was it got sales and it got attention and you know, we lived. We lived. We lived to raise some more funds and make another product, but um, I don't think it lasted. I don't think it's not easy to buy a seaboard anymore. I don't think Rolly do any of the um, first or second um, members of the family anymore. They're all out of stock, and um, that 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 that's an unfortunate um, byproduct of the way we were working. But it turns out you can't steer a meteor. Well, I mean, some of this is a matter of record. Uh, there were a couple of articles in the Sunday Telegraph a few months ago about. Um, Roley as creditors writing down its value and so on, and what else is public knowledge is that the um, Roley acquired uh, Juice back in twenty fourteen the uh, software framework and sold that last year to Pace, in what was clearly an exercise to raise a bit of money and um, some of the parts of um, FX expansion that they acquired back in twenty sixteen so BFD has gone to In Music now so Akai Pro and that that group of companies, and so Roly has divested a few of its crown jewels, um, and it stopped making a Seaboard. Now the emphasis is very much on this um this music tuition instrument, this light up keyboard called Lumi. Um, that's what Roly is about these days, and I think there were some efforts to relaunch Seaboard, but actually to turn it into a turn it into the mature product that it always deserved to be would require a A bit of money and a bit of commitment from somebody and the business case isn't necessarily there to see it through, because it would be an expensive product to perfect.
1: Let's talk about head tracking for audio. Let's finally demystify this pesky, never properly working concept. But um, I've got a feeling you might have slightly different answers. (laughs) So Ben, you're certainly an expert on this. Let's start with the basics.
3: What is head tracking for audio? So at its most basic level, a head tracker is a sensor that lets you know how your listener's head is oriented at every instant and and possibly where they are in the room. So there's two categories of head tracker. But um, if you're delivering a VR experience over headphones, um, it can add some very basic but important interactivity. So you can customize what you're delivering using the head tracker to get some information back from the listener and, and through a visor if they're wearing one, so if you've got vision as well and 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 do things to the audio to make it feel more immersive so in binaural we use headphones to feed signals directly into a, a listener's left and right ears and we make them as similar as possible to what they'd be hearing if they were actually in the world we're creating for them with head tracking you can compensate for their head movements by counter steering the audio to keep it fixed in position in the environment and and that that's quite an important thing to do for for immersivity
1: seems like a simple thing or rather complicated thing. So why is it necessary when working with Spatial Audio? <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's a good question. Um, and actually, it's, it's one of those things that is often ignored. So, it, um, for, so, so you will often experience Spatial Audio without head tracking, as it's quite easy to do something like record binaural with a dummy head, but actually to virtualize something and make it interactive is much harder. And so really, people have only been talking about head tracking for the last 20 years in what has been a 50-year-long science, I suppose, or maybe even a 100-year-long science. But um, why is it necessary? There's a couple of answers to that. The first is that experiments in human perception keep telling us that the brain doesn't really separate out the senses when it's deciding whether to believe something. So we keep seeing things like the Franzen illusion, where if you play somebody a certain audio stimulus... And, and they can see the speakers in front of them and you play in one speaker and they rapidly fade to the other one. In certain presentation, in certain presentation modes, they will lock to the first speaker. If you have a visual cue, so if they see somebody hitting something, even if it's over a monitor, they will localise the sound to the screen. Um, all the sensors are interlinked. We can make the auditory sense agree with the listener's proprioception, so their sense of where their body is positioned. And that will actually make the illusion much more believable. So the first thing is the more senses you have working in concert and the more you can do that well, the more you can make the headphones disappear and the easier you can make it for the listeners to suspend disbelief and feel like they're part of the environment. So that's the first thing. It's getting the senses to agree with one another. But um, apart from all that and changing your mode of engagement with audio, head tracking removes the classic problems of static binaural presentation. So... If a simulation isn't head-tracked, people will often complain about it ending up being located inside their head, and they can't shake it out. And there are other position errors as well that are well-documented. So um, front-back and, and people finding, people finding sound sources seem to come from the wrong side of their heads or always elevated above their heads, and that can get unpleasant. So there are other ways we try to solve this, but head-tracking works well, and it works universally. Let's
1: talk about some practical stuff. There are a few choices out there and um, I was wondering, in your opinion, what do you think what makes a head tracker a good or bad experience from an immersive audio standpoint?
3: There are really three basic answers to that, I suppose. Um, Or three basic answers I was trying to address. So there's the number of degrees of freedom it has, and its accuracy and its latency. So most systems that you might use for audio head tracking just happen to have three degrees of freedom. Um, that's nothing to do with degrees as in angles. It's, it's the power of a system to express different dimensions. So three degrees of freedom would be roll, pitch, and yaw. It's enough to describe the rotation of your head completely in three-dimensional space, but it doesn't tell you anything about where it is in space. So some of the head trackers designed for VR headsets and so on the ones that generally have either cameras embedded in them or lots of outboard equipment to triangulate them. They have six degrees of freedom, so they allow you to express the head angle but will also follow you around the room. My head tracker, in common with the ones in its class, has three degrees of freedom, and I was hoping to achieve six, but in practice it's hard to do unless you have this outboard equipment that makes it harder to set up. But three, is, I think, is enough, so that's the first thing.
1: But unless we're in a game engine um, like Unity or Unreal, and say most people kind of do quite a bit of work in DAW before moving on to the next stage, you don't really need SIGSDOF anyway.
2: That's true.
1: I might be wrong, but as far as I'm aware, are there any third party software solutions that would support SIGSDOF's head tracker within the DAW environment?
3: I don't know of any commercial products. I know that the University of Huddersfield was doing a research project for, or has been for the last couple of years about um, involving 6DOF head tracking and and trying to realize audio in that domain. Although actually the thing about 6DOF is if you're doing something that has a sweet spot, like even higher order ambisonics, um, what do you do with your extra three degrees of freedom? You, You can use it to move yourself out of the sweet spot, but then you're breaking what you're trying to simulate. And so there are only certain modalities that it will work in. Exactly. And that's that's, that's that's so maybe six stuff is inherently less useful with what we're trying to do until we are doing full VR.
1: And, and yeah, unless you can transport yourself within that virtual space.
3: Yes, if you've got a fully rendered space and it's all object based, then you can yeah you can physically move objects towards you or away from you, and, and and you can move towards and away from walls, and all the rendering will take care of itself. But if you happen to be picking up a choir with an expensive microphone array, then you've got what you've got, which is The sound feel beautifully captured at perhaps a small point in space. Uh, Where were we? Okay, so um, 3DOF and 6DOF, that was the first one. The second one will be, I suppose, um, angular accuracy. But that's not really a problem in our industry because I think, well, I know, research shows that if you've got something that can express a couple of degrees of angle in each dimension and that's your accuracy, then that's more than good enough for audio. Audio is a much blunter instrument than vision, so pretty much any head tracker you can buy is good enough in terms of angular accuracy. But the third thing, the the real sticking point, I think, in a lot of commercially available head trackers is low latency. So from what we know about perception, you have about 50 milliseconds between a listener changing the angle of their head and having to supply them with audio appropriate to that new position. Otherwise, you, you can hear that delay. Um, And if your senses aren't in perfect synchronicity, that's a powerful cue to your brain that you're not well. So 200 milliseconds of latency, say, over an extended period might convince your body that you've been poisoned with all the predictable consequences of that. So it'll be fine over an hour or two. You can get used to that lag, but um, you wouldn't want to spend a working day listening to laggy audio. 50 milliseconds then is your upper limit, but in practice... The head tracker can probably swallow about 10 to 15 milliseconds of that budget, and you really need the rest for being able to crossfade or switch your audio parameters without there being any audible artifacts. So the head tracker's got to be quick. And actually, if you start trying to use a wireless solution, you swallow up that budget immediately. So at the moment, with the best technology we've got, these things have to be wired. They have to be connected by copper because then you have sub millisecond latency for the transport
1: yeah and and i can't imagine people complaining about a wired solution if if it was much more reliable and uh, responsive because that's the core element isn't it it's the effectiveness of a device which has been the most elusive quality and being wired is, is is not a problem for anyone
3: well i hope so well, I should think if, if, if it's a difference between this product working and not working for somebody, then, um, then yes, they will tolerate the wires, particularly in the pro audio sector where your headphones are already going to be wired. And there isn't this obsession to go wireless that there seems to be in the consumer space at the moment with phone companies taking the headphone ports off their phones.
1: You actually have produced a head tracker yourself, surprisingly called Head Tracker One. I have. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> Why make one? Um, although after hearing listening to you for the past half an hour, it sounds like a bit of a silly question now.
3: Well, it's not necessarily. I, I think the shorter answer is I just got I got got sick of waiting for the rest of the industry to produce a thing that I wanted to buy, or I needed to sell my customers. Thank you very much, and there are
1: probably a lot of listeners out there absolutely agreeing with you with that statement.
3: Well, I hope so because to um to to spend the budget and the time to produce a product of that complexity is quite a terrifying thing to do. Um, and, and you don't go into it, I think, with certainly not as a solo inventor with the dream of recouping your costs. You put, you put something out there because you need to. You either need to, to move on with your own research or you feel it has to exist and, and you hope the rest of the world agrees with you and it would be nice if they did. But um, I started making this thing back in 2018 when I left Roly, And there were basically three categories of product out there at that time. I think the world is a bit better now. But um, the first was a kind of Oculus Rift and HTC Vive and so on. So head trackers with visors. And they're great, but they need ancillary equipment. And they're quite complicated. They require a video card in order to do the processing. And it's and it's expensive to try and reduce that system down to something where you don't have a visor if you want to do what a musician or producer wants to do, which is stick with their computer and their monitor because they're surrounded by musicians. They're surrounded by things in the real world they need to focus their attention on and and they don't want to do their work through a visor this is this is probably one of the mo- this is probably the most human of the engineering disciplines that we practice and so it's helpful to be in the real world whilst wearing a pair of headphones that transports part of your sensors elsewhere that that was that was the state of the market in 2018 there are kind of three things you can buy and that was one category and the other category was the kind of defence products that university departments would buy so the kind of things that um were developed for NASA to stick into their pilot's helmets and they're they're quick and they're brilliant and they have six degrees of freedom. And they're wonderfully engineered, but they're also like $2,000. So a university department will buy one, but I don't think a casual experimenter is going to go, well, I wonder what my audio work would sound like with this, and then spend two grand and then go through the rigmarole of setting it all up. So that was the second category of product you can buy. And the third, of course, was the hobbyist kits that have been available for the last 10 years and if you go on a forum and say what head tracker do you recommend the answer will be go out and buy an arduino and get this shield for it and download this code from github and good luck with setting up the tool chain and so you know two or three days later you'd have all the equipment and yes it would be 30 dollars, but it's also it's also several problems that you have to overcome like how do you mount it to your headphones and And how, if you're not uh, a specialist in electronic engineering, do you actually get the thing going? And it's fine if you have those skills, as I do, but I don't see the industry starting a revolution unless my customers could buy something better, frankly.
1: Well, you've hit the nail on the head, absolutely, and that's been my personal experience, and I guess I'm one of those people who, if I need a solution uh, and I need it because I need some kind of improvement in my workflow and enhancement, maybe I would like to be more efficient. Maybe I'd like to be able to do something differently. And, you know, fiddling with things and might, might be interesting, might not be for everyone. And I think that's been a bit of a story for head trackers for audio. I've seen so many like versions of the same thing, like exactly how you described, you have to kind of Bits and pieces together that never actually works.
3: That's right. Well, it's, it's okay if you, um, I, I see this happening a lot at universities. If they want head trackers for their audio labs, they will, they will basically have a student build a homebrew solution for them, but the student has access to the electronic engineering lab and, and they have access to postdoctoral researchers if they need a, some help with it. And, and, and unless you are an experienced product designer, actually, it's, it's very difficult to get those things working. If you are an experienced product designer, then why not design a better product? That was my quandary anyway. I really appreciate your
1: ethos here that you've kind of reiterated uh, several times during our conversations that you're trying to make it as affordable as possible. That's the key to success because um, hmm. for a lot of people, that might be too much of a barrier to consider such a device in addition to. Maybe already uh, quite an expensive setup. How did you kind of approach this mission of making device absolutely rock solid, but kind of as affordable as possible for the user?
3: Well, fortunately, my experience at Focusrite led me to know how to make an inexpensive product, and um, and I I crafted it. The engineering, the engineering quality of it is pretty robust. Um, I had three years to work on it, and it involved some. Quite, I mean, I, from an engineering perspective, it's the hardest project I've ever had to work on. And all of that is down to the complexity of the, of the firmware and, and writing the stuff that does all the maths and sensor fusion. I'm quite glad that the only criticism I've had of the product so far is it might be too cheap. Uh, and I suspect that, um, well, I'm selling it at £55 retail because, frankly, I can. I can make enough money just about to make that worthwhile and because i've because i've been quite careful with the way it's constructed but um the other reason i think that it should be quite low priced is because immersive audio in general is a fairly difficult thing to get into at the moment it's very much a hobbyist thing there is no orthodox workflow the tools aren't quite there yet the um the digital audio workstations don't just do it and so you're already asking a lot of a creative person to get involved with it, to put aside their conventional workflows and to experiment. And so this thing has to be cheap. People have to be able to buy it on a whim. And then they can, then they can climb only one mountain rather than two. And That was why I, thought, I made it cheap, because I thought it should be cheap. It should be almost an impulse buy. You shouldn't have to overthink it. Uh, and that's the only way that... It's only by engaging tinkerers and engaging creatives that immersive audio was ever going to be a thing. Uh, and I've, I've, I've been around long enough to see the first wave of it with Dolby headphone and the Studer binaural room scanner back in 2000. Kind of sync without a trace. Um, the Studer one because it was too expensive to do, and the Dolby one because the market didn't get it. And then I saw a number of other things rise again in about 2010, so there was a dynamic head zone, which failed because it was expensive and not very good. And um, and Focusrite VRM, which is something that I wrote, that um, I designed to have head tracking retrofitted into it at some stage. But um, but Focusrite's vision was really, you know, but Focusrite weren't going to make invest in a three-year project. They wanted to put one product out and test the market. And quite a lot of bigger companies do that. And unless this idea is fully integrated, unless unless it's sold to the customers as a as a fully conceived vision, then it's probably not going to do that well. And a company the size of Focusrite will draw the conclusion that there's not enough demand rather than they've released a half-baked product. And what happened is probably what you should expect to happen. And so that, that, that wave kind of rose and fell again. And, and now we've got Dolby pushing the market hard and we've got DTS coming out with similar products and we've got Apple selling their headphones with uh, motion sensors in. And so the wave is taking off again, but you've got to engage creatives. There's no killer app for this. There's no software that people must have and must listen to. And until that exists, then why are people going to why are people going to make life difficult for themselves? We still haven't managed to sell 5.1 surround mixes of things really into the mainstream. Uh, and the reason for that is the workflow is too complicated, the software replaying mechanisms are too complicated. And really it's if we're honest, it's only 10 or 20% better than two channel stereo. So, you know, selling selling immersive is going to be a challenge and we should be under no illusion. Okay, well, let's talk about the tracker
1: itself. Um, how does it work, and what makes it different?
3: Okay, well, um aside from the aside from the fact it's got a wire, um,
1: <laughs> which, as we established, it's absolutely not a problem for anyone.
3: Well, I, I would still argue it's essential um, unless you're doing all the processing inside the headphones, but that's another thing. Um. So, I, well, I filed a patent a couple of years ago. So, if anybody out there really wants to know um, what makes it different, they can go and read it, and they can just look up SAPA Head tracker on on ISPASnet or one of the patent search engines. But the first thing that's different about it is that, um, well, like like the uh, other smaller inertial head trackers, it's built on these little MEMS sensors, microelectronic mechanical systems. So tiny little machines built into microchips that that can um, sense orientation and movement. So they're the same kind of chips you'll expect to find in the head tracker or the Ambient or the Waves NX. So any number of head trackers are already out there that use these chips. Um, But um, but they all have the same form factor, which is a box on the head. And for two reasons, that's always struck me as a terrible form factor. In my experiments 20 years ago at the university, I had to use a head tracker that in those days weighed 60 grams. And it was about the size of, well... It was a cube, but it was about the size of an orange, so a fairly big thing. Uh, And involved Because it was so heavy and you had to mount it to the top of the headphones, it involved people cramming sports headbands over the headphones on the experiment to keep them in place. But but even now head trackers are lighter and they weigh about 10 grams. I've never liked that feeling where you're adding this freakish box to the top of your head that makes your headband center of gravity a bit too high and it always feels like it's about to topple. (laughs) And so the first thing I did was stream up this new form. And so I've made it quite a, it's this long, thin, very light sensor that can conform to the shape of the headband. Um, and I've made it USB.
1: Yeah, it looks like a, a bit of black tag stacked on the top of your headphones. You, you barely notice it.
3: I suppose so, yes. Well, it's um, it weighs six grams, and it's 20 centimeters long and one centimeter wide, approximately. So it's an unusual shape. Um, and I made it USB because, as we say, I think making it wireless was a wrong fight to pick. Um, so it's a long, narrow strip, but the strip is actually in, inseparable from its function. So instead of having one inertial measurement unit, it's now got three, one in the middle and one at either end. So some of those sensors can now work differentially. So the one on the left can cancel out the effects caused by, uh, but by comparing with the one on the right, you can cancel out effects caused by things other than head rotation. So the fact that this thing is physically long allows its position to be much better than the box-on-your-head type of sensor you can compute out a lot of artifacts that that kind of device can't. And so the head, is, uh, head tracking is much tighter and more responsive. And I think if, if people try it, they'll notice that straight away. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of other ways that it's different, but um, yeah, the form factor and the, um, and the wire, I suppose, are the main things. I, I, I suppose the other thing that's different about it is that, um, unlike the other head trackers you can buy, it is a product that is made for the professional audio industry. And what comes with that is the fact that there is a manufacturer-supported OSC bridge application that you can run in order to make this play well with other things. And 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 my priorities are basically the same as the priorities of my customers. I'm trying to create this thing to, to make it work well with pro audio applications. And that's going to be the focus of my attention for as long as I can sell this thing.
1: Ben, uh, let's talk about the... Again, even more practical element. How do you use the tracker? So I understand it uses uh, Open Sound Control protocol. That obviously has a user interface with um, various parameters um, and features that you can use. Can you talk us through the the process of using the tracker, connecting to the computer, connecting to the DAW, connecting to the preferred sort of tools for spatial audio mixing? and uh, kind of all the steps in between.
3: Okay, well, um, as the, um, the bridge has been out for all of two working days now, one of the things that I want to do is try and run through as many plugins as possible that are compatible with this thing now and, and, and do a basic video on sort of the top 10 things you can do with a head tracker. But um, the head tracker itself is a MIDI device, and, um, and the MIDI spec is published, but you can use it in that way. It's probably easier with all the things that are out there now to to run this OSC bridge. And this is just a piece of program. This is just a program that runs in the background on a Mac or a PC and connects to the the head tracker using MIDI and allows you to do all the configuration you'd like to do with it. And we'll also take in the angular measurements that are coming in from the head tracker and immediately spew them out of an OSC port. And most of the um, ambisonic scene rotators are able to accept some kind of information via OSC from a head tracker. And I've attempted to, I've attempted to go through a list of the popular ones and all of the popular ones that support OSC. There is a bridge setting where it will just talk to this thing. So generally, if you open up the plugin, there may be something to click or a port number to set up somewhere in the bowels of the plugin in the documentation somewhere. And if you set the port number to a certain number and the port number on bridgehead to a certain number, Magically, the data just appears, and, and the head tracker will then start to steer your plugin. so I've tried to make it as easy as possible.
1: brilliant. Uh, ben, do you want to mention a list of supported plugins that you've managed to make it work with um, just so listeners are aware of what, um, what are the options at the moment?
3: Okay, well, the things that I've tested and I know work are the um, IEM plugin suite, so the scene rotator. I know that ax rotates, so a a, a commercial Ambisonics rotation engine um, definitely works with it out of the box, and I know that the Sparta tools work with it too. Ambix I'm less sure about, and I think the um, person who, who who writes and maintains that code may have to recompile it because I'm not sure it's been tested with a head tracker. But you can, if you use the kind of learn facilities that are built into a DAW, you can just about drive Ambix as well with the with the data from the head tra- from 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 the um, OSC bridge. Um, I've also tried to make it compatible with the Facebook 360 suite, but actually I've not managed to get that working yet, and I don't know if it's because I'm doing something wrong or because they haven't wired it up appropriately. I must confess that all this time of being a product developer, I've been less of a practitioner, so I'm not au fait enough with the Facebook tools to be able to go straight in there and, and, and get everything working. So I may need somebody's help for that, but I think the system is going to work in the way that if you buy the head tracker hoping to use it for something, you probably can. And if you can't, get in touch with me because I think you should be able to use it for, for most of the plugins out there you'll want to use it for. That's quite a promise, isn't it? But, you know, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. I only need to make it compatible once.
1: Ben, I remember you saying that um, there's currently a shortage in terms of getting parts to build more trackers. Is that due to COVID or is just just a thing? Can you tell us more?
3: Well oh, kind of. There is there's a a there, there is a global chip shortage at the moment. So the thing is happening that the BBC calls Chipageddon a couple of weeks ago, but I prefer the word chipocalypse. Um, <laughs> but there there are two separate problems really that are producing a stock shortage across the electronics industry. And the first that's affecting literally everybody from Apple downwards is the, the COVID pandemic. So a lot of semiconductor factories had to start working under COVID restrictions. And they set up social distancing and so on. And that meant they were down to maybe 75 or 80% capacity. And that's fine. That's kind of manageable. That produced waiting lists of a month or two. But um, what happened at a few companies is that uh, those measures resulted in staff taking industrial action. And um, some of these factories were on strike for a month. And that really compounded the difficulties. So um, some microcontrollers are now on a six-month waiting list. Fortunately, I do have stock of components because there are four chips on the head tracker and absolutely none of them are in stock and none of them available until July. But I am in a lucky situation where I anticipated this soon enough to buy 200. And I have a short wait before I can use those for various dull reasons I won't go into. But you know, I, 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 can. I should be able to weather out the storm with 200 units. I hope I can anyway, unless demand is much greater than I'd hoped in the next three months. But um, the second problem that affects only the electronics industry, unfortunately doesn't affect me, is that a very prominent Japanese maker of audio converters bur- had their factory burned down in October. I heard about that one. Not just their fabrication facility, but pretty much everything else. Uh, and for two months, uh, their emails to customers were basically the equivalent to somebody walking around after a house fire going, where is everything? You know, They didn't, they didn't even know when they'd be back online. They hadn't even taken a full appraisal of what they'd lost yet. So it's it's pretty major. All indications that they'll be down for a year, and what makes it a real disaster for them, of course, is a year is enough time for all the businesses that depended on them to have to redesign their hardware. So they'll lose all their customers, and it's going to take them a while to get them back. Wow! But that's that's a big deal for a lot of the uh, higher end companies, sort of Avids and the Prism Sounds of this world, and people who use those converters are, you know, they they they've been having real problems making stuff from for, 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 well since October. So yeah, there there are two big problems at the moment. Last time I saw anything like this was back in the financial crisis. So when I started at Focusrite back in 2008, it was it was fairly standard to have six or seven month lead times because all the semiconductor factories thought right there'll be a big recession and shut down, but demand didn't stop, and um, and that caught them that caught them on the hop. But it meant that companies like Focusrite, who are at the bottom of the pyramid, had to wait half a year for stuff and. And sometimes had to wait even longer because 20 weeks into your wait, the factory got bullied by a bigger supplier and said, you're going to give us those chips. But they're for another customer. I don't care. Do you want our business? And that kind of thing happened all the time. And six months could turn into eight or nine. So that was, that was normal when I joined Focusrite, which was my first big company. And um, since then, things have been more sensible. You know, four or five week lead times are normally standard. But now they're back up to six months again. And we haven't even mentioned Brexit, let's not talk about
1: <laughs> Let's not go there. Um, I guess it's a good time to be making head trackers besides the parts shortages, etc. due to COVID. But the reason why I'm saying that is Apple Airpods Pro. And to me, that seems a rather important development because I would say maybe majority of the users within the community that would be interested in a head tracker would be somewhat more into VR mixed reality and uh, 360 video, things of that nature. However,
3: yes, that's true.
1: the implications that will come into play with the release of um, hardware devices by such a big player, such as Apple, probably means that all kinds of verticals within audio industry will uh, engage with the spatial audio and head-tracked audio, potentially potentially podcasting, film industry, music, um, so... Well, even things like video conferencing. Well, there you go. The potential is enormous. So I was wondering, what are your thoughts uh, on this? And uh, yeah, um, what do you expect to happen potentially even this year?
3: Well, I mean, when it comes to Apple, I welcome some competition. I also welcome a contribution of that level to, to our art. Um, I think think the um, user experience for the AirPods, the Pros and the Maxes is only only going to improve in successive iterations. Um, What they've already achieved is impressive. So these are very confident-looking products. They perform head tracking, even the AirPods Pro, through two tiny devices synchronizing their data. And all the processing happens inside those devices. So that's where the inertial tracking takes place. Um, They've still got latency because the two have to cross-check with one another. And that means taking a wireless path through your head. So latency is still a little high, but I'm sure they'll improve that as they iterate the design. Um, with the AirPods Max, I've not tried them, but there's a wire running through the headband. So that's going to make more things possible. But I look forward to testing them after the pandemic and all its in all of its wonder um, allows me to walk into a shop and stick something on my head without the shop assistants looking at me funny. But I know lots of people who use headphones all day, every day, and their budget isn't £500. So the AirPods Max is is primarily a signifier of personal net worth. I don't think it's a professional audio product. So um, Apple can do what I can't. So they can embed really incredible technology like that in a tiny product. They can roll it out amongst different categories that I can't address, such as gaming and video conferencing, where the market is more conservative and innovation is far more difficult. And they can put it in the hands of millions of people. And um, the reason I'm not terrified is that there are three important things that they can't do that I can. And the first is um, launching a cheap product into a small market. They just don't have that in their DNA. The second thing is to play nicely with parties outside their ecosystem. So if a third party approaches me and says, can you add this to your bridge? Can you add this feature to the head tracker? My answer, if it's reasonable, can be sure. And Apple's answer will be, wait two years and go away. And I can also make decisions that prioritize the Pro Audio community, which Apple, with their mass market appeal, just cannot do. The Pro Audio community is too small for them, while it's my entire world.
1: And I completely agree with you, because especially with the third point you just mentioned, these things are not mutually exclusive. And I could be completely wrong, but the way I imagine it to be AirPods Pro and similar products are consumer-level products that essentially will grow... Our industry and create demand for production of, you know, all kinds of genres and formats that involve spatial head tracked audio, where professionals would probably rely on more professional kit that they're familiar with that is, well, let's hope so, kind of answering their needs, which potentially could be something uh, like Head Tracker One. However, hmm. they're creating content for for the products that we just talked about that are being released and promoted by big brands such as Apple. So it's 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 not necessarily a competition even. It's more like that big move uh, by Apple actually potentially will create uh, an opportunity for uh, professional products to move into the market for the community um, that will be preferred. It's, I guess, equivalent of maybe, I don't know, um, Maybe it's a bad example, but using your preferred studio monitors in a studio, but also having that, um, I don't know, a pair that you're producing your content for and you just have that uh, as a kind of as additional reference because, you know, that's what majority of consumers are going to be uh, consuming that content on. But you're still sticking to your well-known, familiar sound of your speakers. You know, that's a classic example, but there are loads of parallels that we can draw.
3: Rather like the Aura Tone boxes that sit on the mixing desk. And being able to hear things like a customer would hear them. Yes. Uh, well, it's it's uh, the, the bigger point to make is that it's a whole marketplace of ideas, and and everybody is is, is testing out their own notion of what the future should look like. Um, and content consumption, which is going to be Apple's big play, is 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 a, is a has a different set of criteria from content creation, which is going to be where I'm focusing my attention for now. And I, yes, it's. Um, but but we both got two. we got both got things to say and it's 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 not a predator versus prey thing it's very much a dialogue everybody it's it's a it's, it's a marketplace everybody is talking everybody is sharing ideas and things get fertilized and some things are successful and and what you're responding to isn't any one particular customer any one manufacturer any one threat it's this whole set of things that are going on yeah it's very exciting i well i've only been in it for 2 weeks and i'm already enjoying it tremendously
1: no, I think it's gonna be a big year for head tracked audio because two Apple devices out there already in the market. So the, the the functionality is built into it, but the kind of functionality of consumption hasn't been turned on, so to speak. You know, there, there is no content or there is no platform from which you can consume head tracked audio in such way. Although I might not know all the facts here, but um, if somebody's out there who's listening knows otherwise, please contact us and let us know.
3: I'm sure well the thing to watch would be Netflix because they've been streaming Atmos for a while and they'll if, if there's an experimental thing going on they'll be involved in it
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's there's MPEG gauge, there's AC4, you know, there's um Spotify have registered patent that uh, um looks like it, yes. something they'll be utilizing HeadTrack audio. Obviously, it's it remains to be seen, you know, what format or what hardware, but you know, it's all kind of heading in the kind of this agnostic direction. Maybe maybe there could be the codec competition will continue but general gist will be that you know not only those people who work with immersive media but also those who work with traditional formats and um, kind of industry verticals should prepare themselves to be able to produce content that supports audio head tracking and i guess that's the bottom line Mm, yes so, Ben, th- thank you for giving a really insightful overview on the topic. Um, I really enjoyed it. I also learned a thing or two. I'm sure our listeners did as well. What's the best way to get in touch with you or just find out more about the subject and uh, the product itself?
3: Okay, well, the um, the best way is to look at the website, so supperware.co.uk. There's a contact form on there, or you can just email me at ben at supperware.co.uk. Um, and yes, that's the, probably the best way of getting in touch at the moment. As I say, we are currently out of stock. And I say that, but actually, I am holding one unit back that I can give away to a listener of this podcast, and we can cover that in a moment if you want. Um, in fact, let's cover it now. Um, I'm giving away a unit to a listener of this podcast, and I was I was trying to wonder how I could do this, and it's very hard to make a fair test of merit, so this is a draw, so what, what you should do is email ben at supperware.co.uk with your name and I'll put it through a hashing algorithm and whoever's name comes out with the highest number will win. So it's both random and deterministic. There you go.
1: That's absolutely brilliant. Um, I love it. And we'll make sure to you. include all the relevant details in the podcast show notes, as well as on our Twitter, on social media as well, to make sure you don't miss out on this opportunity. Um, sadly, I won't be entering
3: Thank you. Um, I should say that there's a closing date for it as well. Friday the 5th of March. Would that be a fair closing date? So we'll say um, on, on Friday evening I will close the competition and um, and I'll come up with the draw over the weekend and announce the winner on Monday. Although if you want to use a draw, of course, to tell me what you think I should be making next or to tell me what you think about the product, I'll be delighted. We can make this a conversation too.
1: Brilliant. Okay, well, that's lovely. Combining um, gambling with productive conversation.
3: if you feel you want to have a test of merit as well then then put one in there you won't be judged by it
1: (laughs) excellent can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career
3: i'm glad i was prepared for this but it's quite hard to pare it down to one i suppose i would give i'd give one piece of advice specifically to somebody starting out in their career and i'd give another piece of advice to somebody who's where i am now Um, If you're starting out in your career, I can't really improve on my colleague Matt Robertson's advice. Um, He was a Tonmeister graduate with me and now has a very successful career as a composer, arranger for films. But he once gave an interview where he said, be nice to everybody and say yes to everything. So you make the random encounters happen and you make them count. And you know that advice is working when at some point you have to start reflexively having to turn down work. But Certainly, at the beginning of your career—the first impression you make—is extraordinarily important, and you never know where things will lead. And it becomes—it's it, it, true throughout your career, but um, at some point, you get the level of seniority where you have to start managing your time before your time manages you. Anyway, that sounds silly information. Be nice to everybody and say yes to everything. Where am I now? Um, as an entrepreneur, um, another Matt, Matt Watkinson, who's um, who's a, a a very successful author, gave me a word of caution. So. He told me that as an employee, your strengths compensate for your weaknesses. But as a businessman, your weaknesses drag down your strengths, and you need to let people in who can fix that. You can't do this on your own. And that was, you know, that's world-changing, that advice, because if you've been an employee for 20 years like I have, you're, you're almost blind to the fact that there are other people who support your weaknesses most of the time. And that just doesn't happen when you're on your own, and you've always got to be watching out for it. So those are the two pieces of advice I think I would give. And, and I have loads more, but, you know, I think editing is probably an advantage.
1: Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thanks
3: very much. Uh, you too. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I hope I hope I said something. You certainly did. Um, and thank you for talking to us this evening. It's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the Immersive Audio Podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Bjorn Jacobson. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at I audio podcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. I'm Emily Reese from the podcast Level with Emily Reese, and I interview people who make audio for games, mostly composers. Our newest episode features composer Gordy Hab about his music for Star Wars Squadrons, which is absolutely outstanding. You can find us at patreon.com level and levelwithemily.com.
4: Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. On episode 85, I spoke with production sound mixer and boom-op Chris Bell, based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We talk about working on the feature film *Unearth*, where he recorded Location Sound on set and did the post-audio work. Check out the latest episode. Hi, this is Christian from the Sound Effect Podcast. In our latest episode, you'll hear Sergio Diaz and Zach Sievers talk about their sound design and mixing work on Gold Lion-winning feature film Nomadland. Check it out at asoundeffect.com forward slash podcast.
0: Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9 a.m. and listen to the amazing Ray of Sound Humans talk about how they got into the biz. And a few cool things, like roadie nicknames and fizzy water preferences. You can find the Sound Girls podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org.
4: Hey everybody, this is Tim from Tone Menders. In our latest episode, we talk with four-time Oscar winner Richard King. He tells us about the ultra-complicated sound for Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenant. We talk about creating interesting sound design for scenes happening in reverse, how to build cinematic body punches, and his thoughts on the controversy over the film's dialogue mix. Listen wherever you find podcasts or at tonebenderspodcast.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Hughes, host of the Sound Architect podcast, where I interview audio professionals around the world about their projects, their careers, and their advice. I've spoken to some of the most amazing sound designers on the top games, TV shows and movies of our time. Our guests also include some of the biggest composers of our generation and some of the most amazing voice actors I've ever spoken to. Catch The Sound Architect podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or at our website www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk See you there! In our modern lives, we spend so much time thinking about what things look like that we tend to forget about our incredible sense of hearing. That's where we come in. I'm Dallas Taylor, and I'm the host of 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. In each episode, we chase down the hidden backstory behind a famous sound or sonic phenomenon. We followed sound designer Ben Burt on his hunt for the sound effects of Star Wars. He was hiking and his backpack caught on a, a guy wire that was leading up to a radio tower. And he heard what sounded like a blaster sound. We found out that dinosaurs probably didn't sound anything like Jurassic Park. If we were around when T-Rex was around, we might feel these sounds of the largest dinosaurs more than we would hear them through our ears. We've tracked down the origins of a drum sample that's been used in hundreds of hip hop and electronic songs. During that time, everybody had drum breaks. And we had been doing songs where Greg would play these drum beats we've explored the challenges of interplanetary communication.
2: It's pretty amazing to think that I could be on Mars and say, Houston, I have a problem. And it will be 40 minutes before they get back and say,
4: what's up? And we've revealed how the Netflix audio logo almost included the sound of a goat. For a while, we were stuck on that goat sound. I thought that would be a good time. (laughs) This year on 20,000 Hertz, we'll uncover the origins of even more iconic sounds.
0: Our dog.
4: we'll also hear from a few surprise guests in this run of Daffy.
0: He's not the greedy money. Ooh, that's mine. Give that to me. We're bringing him back to the, uh,
4: I'm Daffy. You know, Uh, we are all time travelers going one way. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz, wherever you get your podcasts. That's 20,000 Hertz spelled out without any numbers. Once you see our swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. And if you're already a fan of the show, tap the share button in your podcast player and post this trailer on Facebook or Twitter or text it to someone directly who you
3: think would love this show.